Good evening, everybody. It's a joy to be here. Tonight, I have the joy and the honor and the privilege of uh, bringing the word to you tonight. We're going to do things a little bit differently because of that. Um, so we're going to hear the message first, and then we're going to sing in response. And that'll be fun. Fun for everyone, especially me. And uh, just to begin tonight, uh, we are going to sing a, a, a very simple chorus. Uh, some of you may remember it. We haven't sung this in years and years and years here. Um, it's a simple song called Thank You, Lord. Uh, it goes like this, and if you remember it with me, uh, why don't you sing it along with me? It goes, Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me Thy great salvation so rich and free. I grew up singing that song. It was a, a song that I knew from a very young age. And I actually sang that song at kind of a momentous time in my life. Uh, my dad had taken me backpacking uh, to Seneca Rocks and uh, spruce knob it's in west virginia it's a beautiful beautiful mountain you see me and my dad there this picture's hanging up in my on my office that's when i had hair look at that you can't hardly see it but it's big and beautiful <laughs> it's a beautiful head of hair like a lion and uh no more but uh we had just finished a 50 mile trek through the mountains there in west virginia beautiful time uh just me and my dad and and the last day of our trip, we decided to go to this rock outcropping. And it's, if you've ever been there, uh, you'll know it's just, it's just a rock face on either side. It's nothing like it, and it's the only thing like it east of the Mississippi. Of course, you have a lot of rock outcroppings like this in the west in the Rockies. But here at, uh, at Seneca Rocks, it's called. Uh, it's just a, a, a sheer rock face. It's very popular with rock climbers and things. And so this was kind of a, my dad liked to challenge me a little bit. And, and uh, we had just finished hiking. We were both sore. I'm sure he was more sore than I was. <laughs> but uh, he said, I'll race you to the top. We were at the very bottom, you know, at the river. And never one to, you know, shy away from a contest. I took off and I ran up the mountain. And we both ran up the mountain. He was in great shape. And we were we were racing, legitimate racing, and I would find, I would find shortcuts, you know, it'd be switchback trail, and I would cut straight up the mountain, and he'd be doing the switchbacks, and I eventually beat my dad, I felt really proud about that, and uh, we got out there, and the, that picture, literally right behind us is the, the, the cliff face down, so we were on just a narrow five or six foot rock cliff, and we're talking hundreds and hundreds of feet straight down on both sides, and we sat out there, we were out of breath, and uh, I was just enjoying the, the view, and my dad said, let's sing a song. Let's sing a song. I'm like, what? You know, I'm a teenager. I'm like, Dad, come on. We don't have to sing a song. Let's sing a song. And so we sang, God is so good. And he said, let's sing another song. We sang, thank you, Lord. Uh, and I still remember that. And... Uh, and in fact, I just took Jeremiah just a couple years ago. We took, to, took went to the same place to kind of retrace my steps. Look at that. That's me and Jeremiah. Of course, I'm bald and he has a hat on. But uh, that's the same, put the same picture side by side, Mason. 
We tried to recreate the moment there. We did a pretty, pretty good job. <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. Yeah, and, and we sang on top of the mountain. And uh, it, was that, it was on that mountain that I was reminded that I didn't go up to God. Okay? I, didn't, I didn't attain salvation. I didn't win the race, even though I had just beaten my dad. I didn't win the race. Uh, he came down to me. The Lord came down to me. He won the race. He is our great champion. And He gave me and us that great salvation. Thy great salvation so rich and so free. Well, we have uh, begun a series on Sunday nights. It's not a set in stone series, but it correlates with the Bible reading plan that we're, we're going through. Uh, the Ashland five-day Bible reading plan. And uh, last week we heard a, a fantastic sermon from Dr. Adam York on Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, when, when uh, the, the great covenant-keeping God of, of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, uh, meets for the first time, introduces himself to Moses on the mountain, Mount Sinai, in the burning bush. And, and uh, he had a fantastic title that I'll never forget, The Great I Am Meets Who Am I. I love that title. Well, a lot has happened. A lot has happened since, since uh, Exodus 3 and then our text tonight, which is in Exodus chapter 19. I don't want you to turn there yet. I just want you to listen because we need to recount some of the story of this beautiful redemption that God has provided uh, by His sovereign hand in the lives of, of His chosen people, Israel. Moses, as you know, had been set apart from birth. His parents saw it. They said, this is a beautiful child. And they rescued him from the hand of Pharaoh who had been killing all of the Hebrew-born uh, males. And uh, his mother and father fashioned for him an ark. That's the, that's the word used in the Old Testament, an ark. We have it translated in our Bibles, a basket, but it was an ark. And, and they sealed it up with pitch, much like Noah, Noah sealed up the ark earlier in Genesis. And, and uh, they set that little baby boy down the river, and suddenly a, a uh, young lady from Pharaoh's own household, Pharaoh's own daughter, saw Moses and rescued him. And, and uh, he was raised, nursed by his own mother, raised in Pharaoh's household by Pharaoh's own daughter. He grew up uh, enjoying all of the, the wealth of Egypt, and yet he found himself uh, defending the Hebrews who were ens enslaved and in bondage. And he ended up killing a man. And he fled into the wilderness. He was terrified. He fled from Pharaoh's presence. And he became a shepherd for years, for decades, out in the wilderness. And it's there where we heard from last Last week from Dr. York, Exodus chapter 3, he's a shepherd in the wilderness and he looks up and he sees on this mountain a, a, a shrub that's burning but not being consumed. I'm wondering you know, how long he, he looked at that. You know, what's going on here? Watching the sheep. Still burning. <laughs> you know, it's curiosity. God has got the best of him. He approaches this this phenomenon, and, and, uh, and then God speaks. And, and his life was never the same again. God told him to go back to Egypt to deliver his people, to approach Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And so that's exactly what Moses did. He goes to Egypt. He appears before Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. The Bible says very clearly, nine times he goes to Pharaoh and says that. And uh, nine times Pharaoh's heart was hardened. 
And He wouldn't let His people go. And each time, God performed what we call a plague, but uh, we should refer to them as the mighty acts of God. Um, those, these mighty acts, these plagues, and this cosmic showdown. A showdown between Yahweh, the God of Israel, against Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt. And in every case, Yahweh proved superior. Proved to be, uh, to be Lord of all. There, were, there was water turned to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, which are bigger gnats, livestock dying in the fields, boils, festering wounds on man and beast. Even the magicians had them. They couldn't, couldn't explain it. Uh, hail. I mean, can you imagine the terror of boulder-sized hail bombs falling and, and destroying everything and killing everyone in their path? Locusts. And then the ninth plague, darkness. Darkness, the text says, that could be felt. It's thick darkness. Often in those nine plagues, uh, Israel didn't experience them. The, the Egyptians had flies, but the Israelites in Goshen did not. Uh, there was darkness over the whole land, and yet the text is very specific, but there was light where Israel was. God was setting apart His own people and protecting His own people. And He continued to protect His own people on that last and most terrifying plague. Moses said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no. And so then God told Moses, listen, I'm going to bring one more plague on this people, this hardened people. And uh, I'm going to protect my people from this plague. But here's what you need to do. You need to kill a lamb. A lamb without spot. A lamb without blemish. You need to take the blood from that lamb. You need to spread it on the doorposts and the lentils of your house. And when I pass through the land and destroy the firstborn of every household. Get that in your minds. Every household. I will see the blood that's been spilt and shed on behalf of that home, on your household, and I will pass over judgment. There's already been one that has paid the price for, uh, for peace and for forgiveness. Salvation was purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And that night, I mean, you can't, uh, you can't imagine the horror. That night, every single home in Egypt, there was weeping and wailing. Every single house had someone who had died. And... Uh, underwent the judgment of the Lord. And finally, Pharaoh says, get out. Get out. And so, uh, laden with the, the plunder of Egypt, the Israelites began a journey that would take them to the Red Sea where in spectacular fashion, God would part the waters of the Red Sea and the people would walk through on dry land. It was, it was a baptism of sorts. Okay, he, they were rescued. They were saved. Now they were baptized into the Red Sea. And, and as the, the, the Egyptian army sank like stones, the text says, uh, the Israelites on the other side of the Red Sea began to lift up their voices as one singing, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. He is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And they were ready. I mean, they had just experienced something that none, none of us have ever experienced in person. Uh, they had seen with their own eyes and experienced in their own lives the mighty hand of God uh, thwarting their enemies, rescuing them out of bondage, leading them through a, a miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, and they're ready. They're ready, to, they're ready to hit the promised land. 
They're ready to march right into the land and, and take that land that was, that was promised to Abraham, the land where the patriarchs were buried. They had Joseph's bones. He gave them instruction concerning his bones at the end of Genesis. They had his bones. They were ready. Let's go to the promised land. But God had different plans, as He often does. He had different plans. He had a promise to fulfill to Moses. You remember from Exodus chapter 3 when God was speaking to Moses, He said this, I will be with you and this shall be a sign to you that, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. On this mountain. Well, here we are in Exodus chapter 19 back at that mountain. I want you to turn there in Exodus 19. <clears throat> In chapter 3, God introduced Himself to Moses. And in chapter 19, in our text tonight, God introduces Himself to Israel. Let's stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. We'll pray together. We're only going to read the first eight verses here. Exodus chapter 19, 1-8. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people Israel of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is Mine. And you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called, all the, called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray tonight as a congregation here that You would remind us of, of just how great Your salvation is. Remind us of the grace You've shown. Remind us, Father, of our response to that grace. Remind us of the blessing that it is to walk as one of Your children. And in, in a brotherhood and in the kingdom of priests. Lord, fill us with joy and hope and strength and boldness because You are our great champion. The winner of our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. For three months, the people walked and would travel and led by this cloud, this presence of God veiled in a cloud. For three months, they would, they would struggle. It wasn't an easy trek. Uh, they would hunger, to which God provided manna. They would thirst, to which God provided water out of a rock. They would grumble, Moses, take us back to Egypt. You know, uh, We want leeks and onions, they said. And uh, they'd have all kinds of sinful attitudes. Well, instead of, this is interesting, instead of leading them north, northeast toward the promised land, God led them directly south, southeast toward this mountain, Mount Sinai. And you can imagine 
you know, the, the grumbling that occurred there. They're, they're noticing where the sun comes up, and they're saying, wait, wait a minute. We're going the wrong way, Moses. We've got a bunch of backseat drivers here. We're going the wrong way. Where are you taking us? I thought we were supposed to go into this land flowing with milk and honey, and where are we now? The wilderness, okay? The desert. Uh, we're at no, no, no such place. Uh, you've taken us the wrong way. The truth is, and this is, this is important, they, need, they would have to know God before they could ever experience the freedom and the goodness of His blessings. And in order for them to know Him, they needed a lesson, a, an 11-month 11 11 long course on thy great salvation. Thy great salvation. We see here in the very first beginning of, of, of verse 4, we see here, uh, we see here grace. The first part of, 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 of thy great salvation. It's an important sequence and an, an order of salvation that is as much the same today as it was then. First we see grace. What does he say? Verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. What's God doing? He's calling them to look, pat, look back. These are, these are past events. This has already taken place. He's reminding them that He fought for them. He fought for them over the Egyptians. Uh, I already mentioned that, that while the, the ten plagues were being rained down on Egypt, they themselves in the land of Goshen were being protected. Were being, were being uh, protected from those, those acts of judgment, those mighty acts. Um, I look back just a couple pages to Exodus chapter 14. You'll see exactly how God fights for His people. Exodus 14, verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Uh, look at verse 25 in the same chapter. Well, verse 24, And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of the fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. It's interesting. No one in the entire story could argue that the Lord was not fighting for Israel. Even the Egyptians recognized that the Lord was fighting for them. He was, he was winning their battles and, uh, and, and fighting for them. It, it, it begs the, the, the question with a painfully obvious answer, who won their salvation? Who delivered Israel? Nobody on the other side of that Red Sea would say, I delivered myself. Nobody could say that. Every single one of them would say, look what the Lord has done. He has become my salvation. That's what they sang. He is a warrior. He fought for us. And so at the very beginning of this, 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 uh, this introduction of himself in Exodus chapter 19, he calls the Israelites to remember, uh, to remember something specific, uh, to remember his, 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 uh, the fact that he fought for them, to remember specifically His grace on them. He, he, uh, he says, remember you yourselves what, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. There's that other part to this verse. He, 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 he gives this beautiful metaphor, this picture of His saving act. He says, I bore you on eagles' wings 
and brought you to Myself. I love that, that image there. Now, everybody in the church now knows that I'm a master conservationist. Now, that's really just a joke. Madison County bestowed upon me an honor years ago that I was a master conservationist and I'm milking it for all it's worth. And uh, in all my years as a master conservationist, I've never noticed this personally. Now, I have, with my bare hands, caught a red-tailed hawk, which I'm sure is illegal, so don't mention that outside of this room. But uh, the, the picture here is, 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 is of an eagle, a parent eagle, uh, swooping down and rescuing the young from falling to their death. Okay, so if, if, if you're familiar with eagles, often they'd have nests high on the mountains. And when they realized, or when the parent realized, or decided it was time for that, that young eagle to fly, uh, what would it do? It wouldn't just wait for the eagle to feel comfortable enough to take off. He'd, he'd kick the eagle out of the nest and uh, sit there for, you know, a few seconds, I'm sure. And the poor little fledgling bird would be trying to fly, but he couldn't. And, and, and this has been documented. Okay, I've never seen it, but it's been documented that the eagle, the parent eagle, the mother or the father, would come swooping down and would catch the young, fledgling, flopping, almost dying eagle and save it, rescue it. Uh, and it's interesting, he wouldn't catch the eagle with his talons. Okay? I know how strong a the talons are on a red-tailed hawk. I can't imagine a full-grown eagle, which are like three times bigger. Um, he wouldn't catch with the talons. He'd catch it on the pinions of its back. Okay? He'd, he'd time the, perfectly so that it would land right on its back and, that, and then carry the little, baby, the little baby bird back up to safety in, in its nest. This is mentioned, I guess, in a little bit more detail, a little bit a better picture for you in Deuteronomy chapter 32. I can just read it for you. Deuteronomy 32, he found them, speaking of Israel, God found Israel in a desert land in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept his eye on, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. It's a beautiful picture. One of the things we've got to keep remembering is that in all of these reminders of grace, who is doing the, the work? Who's acting upon uh, this scene? It's always only God. Only God. He defeats the Egyptians. He bears them on eagles' wings. He brings them to Himself. What a beautiful, beautiful picture that is. Uh, it, it reminded me as I was thinking, dwelling on this passage, of, of every time that, that Janelle had one of our, our children gave birth. Uh, there's this beautiful moment. Now, I didn't deliver them. All that hard work was done by Janelle. But, uh, but there's a beautiful moment when the nurse hands me the baby. And I, I, I get choked up thinking about it even to this day. Uh, th there's this moment where this flood of emotions, this love that you never knew existed wells up within you and you're like, it's, it's breathtaking. And you're staring down at this little baby and you bring that child near. I remember Jeremiah sitting here. I remember the first time I held Jeremiah and, I, and the first words out of my mouth were, hey buddy, I'm your dad. 
I love you. <laughs> I still remember that. I love you. I mean, that's, that's all I could muster, but it was so true. It was like an introduction. And here we have this introduction, you know, from, from God Himself to the people of Israel. He, he brings them to Himself. He bears them on the, the wings of an eagle, brings them to Himself, and He, and he welcomes them into a right relationship with Him. Uh, the first thing that we see in our text tonight and this great salvation, thy great salvation is grace. The second thing we see is, is, is the, the, the obedience of salvation. The obedience of salvation. There's a, well we, we should read verse 5, just the beginning of verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. It's an interesting verse. There's a big if in this verse. If you will indeed obey my voice, and if you will keep my covenant. No doubt, God is commanding full obedience. There is a very real responsibility for the Israelites to obey and to keep the covenant. He has rescued them from slavery. And if they obey His voice and keep His covenant, then they will be His treasured possession. That's what the text says. And in my mind, maybe in yours, red flags are going on. What's going on here? Uh, wait a minute. I thought salvation was by grace alone through faith alone. What's this talk about obedience? Was salvation different for the Jews than it is for us? Is obedience now a prerequisite for salvation? What do you think? Let me just answer it for you. No, no, it's not. No, it's not. But I don't want you. Don't, don't, uh, don't get too, too, too far ahead of me here. We need to remember. Uh, we need to remember Father Abraham. Okay, uh, God made a covenant with Abraham. He would be the father of a great nation. He would give him a land. He, a land. He would bless him and all the nations through his seed. And Genesis chapter fifteen verse six says, "And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as what." Righteousness. Okay, uh, what brought about that creditation of righteousness? Belief, faith. By his faith, he was made righteous. Uh, but that's not all the word says about Abraham. In fact, we hear about Abraham all the way in James in the New Testament, that classic text that that declares for us that that real faith is a faith that is fleshed out. Real faith is a faith that that truly works, that obeys. Uh, and he uses Abraham as an example. James chapter 2, verse 21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. What's so interesting about James' use of that, that whole story is that in chapter 15 of Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In chapter 22 in Genesis is when he offered Isaac up as a, as a sacrifice. And God, of course, provided a, a lamb, a ram in the thicket uh, to take his place. Now, what, what's going on here? What's going on? Faith is fleshed out in obedience. Isaac hadn't even been born when he was given righteousness and believed in God. 
But his faith was at work even in fulfilling the most confusing and outrageous command of God. Take your own son, your own son Isaac, the one I've promised to, be a, uh, to bless your name and all the nations around you with. Take him and sacrifice him. Abraham, Hebrews says, believed that God could raise him from the dead. And so he did. Uh, that's faith worked out. That's faith fleshed out in obedience. Here's the question. Has anything changed? It's important at this point to see the order of our salvation. That important sequence I mentioned in our text. God has already saved them. Okay? He's, already, uh, he's already destroyed the enemy. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. He bore them on eagles' wings. He brought them to Himself. All of those things happened already. What, it, what is not stated is that it's not stated that God went into Egypt and said, hey, Israelites, if you obey My covenant, if you obey My commands, then I will bring you out of bondage. It's not the order. It's not the order at all. Uh, no, He saved them. He baptized them through the Red Sea. And now He gives them this, this description of how life in this covenant works. In light of His saving grace, their righteous response is obedience. In order to experience the blessing of the covenant relationship with God, they were to obey. They were to submit themselves to His will and in obedience to His ways. Uh, John McKay writes, they have not been given the law to save themselves, but so that they might continue to enjoy the salvation they have already been given. Isn't that true still today? Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, after after 11 beautiful chapters of, of the grace of God in salvation, he writes, in view of God's mercies, therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to Him, which is your reasonable act of service. You see the, you see the connection there? He's not saying, offer your bodies in order that you might be saved. <laughs> he said, you've been saved, you've been rescued, the enemy has been destroyed, and in light of that, as a response, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Uh, our response that is that salva to salvation is, is yielding ourselves in worship to Him uh, with our whole lives. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Uh, the temptation that we have is saying, well, okay, I'm off the hook. It's all good. He's going to bring me to completion. But just two chapters later in chapter 3, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's this both and. It's, it's James 2. If you've got faith, it's going to be fleshed out in your life, lives. It's going, to be, it's going to be obeying my voice and keeping my covenant kind of obedience. Now, I, I can't stress this enough how vitally important this this sequence is because, listen, we have the, the, the tendency to want to switch it. Even as those who have received the grace of God in Christ, we have still the tendency to want to switch things around and to forget the, the right order. Okay? Uh, we want to we say, well, if I obey, then God's going to love me more. Or if I serve Him and sacrifice in this way, then He will accept me more. 
Uh, that, is, that is patently untrue. He's already loved you. He's already proven that love to you. He demonstrates it on the cross. He's already brought you to Himself. His love is perfect. You are secure. You've been rescued. So your response then is to obey. On one hand, you have people over here uh, in, in kind of a legalistic camp saying, well, if I do this, then God will love me more. On the other hand, in the same kind of error, we have people over here that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6. They say, well, since I've been given grace, I'm just going to abound in sin so that grace can abound all the more. Both of them don't understand grace. If you're holding on to what you have to offer to God, then you don't understand grace. Uh, the truth is you'll never be good enough. And if you're saying, well, I'm just going to keep sinning so that grace may abound, you're spitting on the sacrifice that God and Christ has made for you. What we need to do is find ourselves in the middle and we need to say, wow, what amazing grace. What, what matchless salvation. The only response, the only righteous response that I can have to such a great salvation is to say, Lord, I will obey. No matter what. I'll obey. I'll trust You. I'll follow You. I'll, I'll yield my life for You. we've seen the, the grace of salvation we've seen the obedience of salvation and the last thing I want us to see in our text tonight is the blessing of salvation that's in verses 5 and 6 it says now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. What a beautiful description this is. He says that they will be their, His treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. God begins this section uh, reminding the people of who He is. He's their rescuer. He's their deliverer. He's the God that brought them out with a mighty hand and saved them from slavery. And now He's declaring to, to His people who they are in this covenant relationship. What is their identity? And He begins by describing them as His treasured possession. That's a beautiful word. Uh, it's a word that often gets lost in our English translations. It's a word in the Hebrew that specifically deals with uh, the, the, the personal property of a king. Okay? Uh, he, he reigns, right? He, he reigns over all of his kingdom, and yet this word is described, uh, used to describe the very things that are in his personal treasury, his, his house, his storehouse, his riches. The things that he personally owns. And that is uh, the word that's used to describe the relationship of Israel to the king. Okay? Um, he says, all the earth is mine, but you are my treasure. It's a beautiful new identity. We are the treasure. They are the treasure of the king. We in Christ are the treasure of the king. We, we belong. We're secure. There is freedom. There's joy. There's love as we dwell in the storehouse of God's kingdom. But not only are we a treasured possession, we have, a, we have a new purpose. We're not meant to just sort of decorate the, the palace, if you will. We're meant to, to be a blessing to all nations. Look at the next part of verse, uh, the beginning of verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. It's the only time in the Old Testament that this, this phrase in uh, exactly appears as is a kingdom of priests 
What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? Think about that. Uh, before we can define that and, and understand what that is, we've got to remember what a priest is. Old Testament priests, as many of you are familiar with, stood on behalf of the people. Uh, they were those who had, who had uh, specific duties given by God in order for them to, to bring near the people of God so that they might rightly worship. Many times they were to offer sacrifices. They were to care for the tabernacle or the temple. They were set apart by God to make His name great among the people. They worshipped and served Him in unique ways, ways not permitted or allowed to everyone. And the role, as you know, in the Old Testament was specifically given to the tribe of Levi. And God declares under this covenant that the entire nation, not just the tribe of Levi, but the entire nation would be a kingdom of priests, would be a kingdom that would, would bring, be brought near in worship and serve and make His name great. And Israel, as an entire nation, has this relationship with God not enjoyed by other nations. That's important to realize. Uh, just as a priest was invited into the presence of God without allowing for other people to do the same, uh, Israel, as a kingdom of priests, was allowed in, into a right relationship with, the, with God. But that doesn't mean that their, their purpose was limited. The, their, their purpose was to be a light to the nations. Remember what God promised Abraham. He said, he said all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This is, not a, this is not just a blessing of salvation. This is the mission of salvation. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Isaiah 49, verse 6. I will make you a light to the, to the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. You see, their purpose as priests weren't just to, to decorate the storehouse of the king. Their purpose as priests was to be a light to the nations. To be holy. To be set apart. To be God's special chosen people. And, and to, to serve as ministers of that good news. That light to the nations. We've seen grace, we've seen obedience, we've seen blessing. Uh, what a beautiful progression that is. Uh, hopefully you're getting it. The, we've been given grace by God's mighty hand. Our righteous response is to obey in light of that grace. And as we obey and fulfill and, and walk in, in, in faithful communion with God, we are, we're recipients of His blessing. Um, a blessing with a purpose. It's a beautiful progression. Let's see what the, how this text ends. Let's read verses 7 and 8. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The people will say that a few more times over the course of the next 11 months. They're going to be there for 11 months to put them out Sinai. They would say that again and again. But their promises would quickly prove what? Empty. Uh, their, their, their hasty response, all that you have spoken we will do, Lord, will quickly incriminate them and will soon bring a hasty judgment just a few weeks from this time, what do you think they're going to be doing? You know the story. Just a few weeks. Moses has gone up on the mountain 
They have, they have, they have heard the ten words in chapter 20. As God delivers His ten words, the ten commandments as we know them, the people receive them and they say, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. But from now on, Moses, you talk to the Lord. This is too terrifying a presence. You speak to Him. You act as our mediator. And so Moses goes up on the mountain with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. And during that time, they see that He is delayed in returning. And what do they do? They take the gold, the plunder that they had just gotten from the Egyptians, and they, they, they form and fashion uh, an idol. And I love, I don't love, it's a it's, it's sad response. Aaron responding to Moses, how did this be? Well, we threw the gold into the fire, and out came this calf, he says. It's crazy. Uh, they do what, they, what all men do. Chapter 32 describes this scene. Uh, they, they fashion for themselves idols. They create for themselves their own gods to worship. They define uh, who they want to worship. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We can almost hear our voices added to the chorus. Don't be so quick to condemn the Israelites. We are much like them. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We have to give them some credit. That, That is the correct response. Right? I mean, they, they, they have been confronted by the majestic holiness of Almighty God. So pure and awesome was His presence that He had to veil Himself with a cloud. Okay? The, the text is very clear. If, if the cloud wasn't there, uh, what would happen? They'd all be dead. They'd all be slain by the, 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 the sheer holiness and majesty of God. And so... You'll put yourself in this situation. If God commands it, and you're sitting there looking at, at this terrifying cloud on the mountain with, with thunderings and lightning and, and, and trumpet sounds, if, if, if you were in that position, what would your response be? I would hope it would be all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They didn't have another choice, okay? Uh, but, but their hearts were steeped in wickedness and rebellion. And no amount of well-intentioned promises would ever draw them near to God. No amount of well-intentioned promises would ever allow them to, to fulfill all that the Lord has spoken. But we praise God tonight that even while hearing those people cry out those words, even while knowing full well how stubborn and how stiff-necked His people were, even while knowing full well that in just a few weeks' time they'd be fashioning for themselves idols breaking the first of the commandments, what did God still do? He still made a covenant with them. He still showed them His grace. I love the way James puts it, but He gives more grace. It's grace on top of grace. He makes that covenant, and of course, that covenant that he made with Israel was, was merely pointing ahead to a, a greater covenant, a new covenant. We read of that covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, promised. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put My law within them and I will write it on their hearts 
And I will be their God, and they shall be My people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know Me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Praise the Lord. Uh, all of this is pointing ahead to this new covenant a new covenant that he would make uh, through the death and the burial and the resurrection of his own son, the greater Israel, the greater mediator than Moses. You see, like the Israel of the Old Testament who was, who was rescued out of slavery and baptized into the Red Sea, this new Israel, this true Israel, Jesus Christ, would pass through the waters of baptism. Remember that day? God would thunder forth from heaven and say, Behold, this is My Son with whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit would descend upon Him in the form of a dove. And like the Israel of the Old Testament, after having passed through baptism of the Red Sea, they were led not directly to the Promised Land, but led where? Into the wilderness. And after Jesus was baptized, where, did he, where was He led? By the Spirit to the wilderness. And like Moses, who appeared before God for 40 days and 40 nights receiving the law, Jesus would, would, would uh, appear before God for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. He would yield to Him. He would pray to Him. He would trust Him. And He would battle the onslaught of temptation from the evil one. This Jesus... This true Israel, this greater mediator, would come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it in every way. While every one of us and all of Israel could say, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and every single one of us would end up falling short and failing at that empty promise. Jesus, our greater mediator, on the night before He was crucified, said, Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And you know what he did? He didn't turn around and run the other direction at that point. He marched to a bloody cross on our behalf. He, he, he took our place on the cross. He became a curse for us. He, he died our death. This mediator would march to the cross on our behalf. He would bear our guilt. The guilt of every single one of us, myself included, who could say everything that you have said or spoken, we will do and failed. He became for us the Passover lamb, whereby the blood that He shed, the death that He died, satisfied the justice and the judgment of Almighty God, such that God sees the perfect blood of the spotless lamb of Christ shed for us, and then, and then that judgment was placed on Him so that His judgment might pass over us. And just as God fought for His people and destroyed the Egyptians in our text, Jesus Christ fought for us. God fought for us. Uh, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, verse 13 2.13 And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing 
over them in Him. You see what's going on here? Jesus on the cross went to to battle for us. He fought on our behalf. And it wasn't just a a battle for us. It was a battle of cosmic proportions. He was battling the rulers and the authorities. And and in His death and subsequent resurrection, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Our God uh, fought for, for Israel in the Old Testament. Our God has fought for us on the cross here today. I love uh, the, the lyric that Andrew Peterson wrote. He has beaten death at death's own game. He's destroyed sin and death in such a way that we, we no longer are enslaved. We're no longer in bondage like the Israelites were to the Egyptians. We're no longer a slave to sin or slave to death. And instead, we cry out, sin, aware of death is your victory. Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And having defeated our greatest enemy, He has by grace alone borne us on eagle's wings and brought us to Himself. That's the grace of salvation. And in view of such unfathomable grace, unimaginable grace, the death of the Creator for His sinful and rebellious creatures, in view of His mercies, we then offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable act of worship. We know in Christ the grace of salvation, and our response must be, the only right response is to say, uh, Lord, we will obey. And, 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 and then we've been given by His grace also the power to obey. It's been, Pastor Todd reminded us this morning, it's by grace you've been saved, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But as recipients of that grace, we also must remember, we are also, what? God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to walk in them. Uh, we're not meant to simply sit on His grace, we're meant to flesh it out in faith and in obedience. And we don't keep on sinning so that grace can abound. Instead, we, 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 we cast that sin off, Hebrews chapter 12. We, we run with endurance the race that's set before us, and we fix our eyes on our great champion, Jesus Christ, knowing that we don't come to Mount Sinai. That's how Hebrews chapter 12 ends. We've heard it preached not too long ago. We don't come to a mountain of blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. We don't stand before Mount Sinai. We stand before Mount Zion, the city of the living God. We stand before Jesus, the mediator of a new and better covenant and and the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We have received the grace of salvation. Our righteous response is the obedience of salvation. And when we walk with the Lord in obedience, we receive the blessing of salvation. When I read... Exodus chapter 19, when it was talking about, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Did that ring any New Testament bells in your minds? I hope it did, because uh, this is quoted directly in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. Why don't you turn there? 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter reminds us of our identity. Just as God reminded the Israelites of their new identity, His treasured possession, Peter links that directly to us as having been realized and fully and finally fulfilled in Christ. He says in verse 9 of chapter, uh, chapter 2, 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here's the reason. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against the soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you see it? Once we have not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. So what's our response as those who have received mercy? Well, our new identity is the fact that we are His treasured possession. We're kingdom of priests. We're a holy nation, a people for His own possession. And as such, as that new identity, we've been given a new mission, which is part of the blessing that we've received. And that, that mission is to declare and proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. You see the connection. We are priests that bring others who are still in the kingdom of darkness near to God. We're called to be set apart, to be holy, so that others who are still in the kingdom of darkness may see our good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. The only difference between Exodus 19 and today is that Exodus 19 has been fully and finally fulfilled in Christ. Christ is, is the key. He is our True Israel. He is our law keeper. He is our mediator. A greater mediator than Moses. He is Lord. And all authority has been given unto Him. And so go. Be kingdom, uh, a kingdom of priests. Be those who shine His light into the darkest regions of the world so that they too can know Thy great salvation. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for Your Word. And, and just as a reminder to us uh, that this is... Your grace has been, has been passed through the generations. And we are recipients of it. We are, we are those most privileged, most blessed as we look back uh, not only to your, your, your picture of your redemptive history in, in the Old Testament, but its fulfillment in Christ in the new. We're recipients of a new covenant. Those who, upon whom uh, the law is written on our hearts and power over sin is granted. And Lord, we're free, free to walk in, in love and in life, free to be witnesses. We pray that in view of your mercies, you'd help us to be those Christians that obey and uh, receive the blessing as we, as we seek to bless others. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.